with the IPCC report coming out and with Greta speaking up, I realized we have to speak up more. This is such an important issue that, you know, does my reputation as a scientist, is that more important than speaking up? No, it's not, because if we can't solve climate change, then I'm going to lose my job as a scientist as well. And yeah, like we have to speak up. We have to act as if it is an emergency and not just go on as as if it's not. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Matt St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Today we have another brilliant female scientist on here to discuss a research paper that she has written. As if coral reefs didn't have enough man-made pressures already, reefs around the world have to deal with a number of environmental or biotic stresses too. Amongst these is stony coral tissue loss disease, A novel white plague that infects many species is highly contagious and causes rapid mortality. Today, we are joined by Franziska Elmer, who is here to discuss her paper titled Ecological Consequences of Stony Coral Tissue Loss Disease in the Turks and Caicos Islands. Franziska is a research fellow at the Center for Marine Resource Studies in South Caicos, Turks and Caicos Islands, and her research focuses on coral recruitment stony coral tissue loss disease, and the impacts of sargassum bleaching on ecosystems and local communities. Hey, Franziska, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, um, actually. It's lovely weather here in Playa del Carmen in Mexico, and it's actually pretty hot. Wow, you're in Mexico. Oh, I am very jealous. I'm insanely jealous too. What are you doing out there at the moment? Um, mostly working remotely on a science podcast on the sargassum algae that is affecting the Caribbean as a sargassum influx. But I'm also just enjoying the beach and actually doing a bit of um, research and meeting people working with sargassum in this area as well. Wow, a podcast. What language is that in? It is in English, French, and Spanish, depending on who we interview. Wow, wow I absolutely love that. You know, I really, I really hope that we get the opportunity to do some bilingual podcasts uh, at some point. Sadly, I only speak English, so um, I'm not much help there. I used to speak um, Spanish quite well, but it's definitely um, just got much worse over the years. But I agree with you, Mads. It would be brilliant to kind of get some of the Women in Ocean Science podcasts translated or to have some bilingual um, people come on board so that we could obviously increase the reach. Yeah, for sure. 
For sure. So, Francisca, today we are here to discuss your paper, The Ecological Consequences of Stony Coral Tissue Loss Disease in the Turks and, I'm going to say this wrong, Caicos, Caicos Islands, Caicos. Um, for which you were a co-author. Caicos, Caicos, perfect. Turks and Caicos Islands, um, for which you were a co-author. So, um, would you like to start off by giving us a little bit of um, an introduction to the paper. What was it about? What were the key findings? Yes, so stony coral tissue loss is a novel white plague. So it's a coral disease. And while I was working as a faculty for the School for Field Studies in the Turks and Caicos Islands, we started to have this disease on our reefs. And luckily enough, we already have done surveys of the coral reefs every year since 2012. So we had a long-term study going on on the bentos, so looking at the corals and figuring out how, many, how much coral cover we have of which species. So after we had the disease for about a year, we decided in 2020 to do the long-term monitoring again and see if the disease had an impact on our coral cover, but also the species richness and the diversity we saw on the reef. So um, our um, waterfront interns were actually the lead on this study. So they were the ones who went down into the water and they took pictures every meter on 100 meter long transects. And then they spent hours in the lab using Coral Point Count, which is a program that puts random points on um, I know that pictures. one well. <laughs> yes. So anybody who knows Coral Point Count knows how much work this is because you're just spending hours yep. and hours looking at pictures and identifying what you see on the random points. And then from that, we have the data on coral cover. So it says this many percent of the points where this coral this many percent of the points were coral in general. And we used that data and compared it to 2012 to 2018 to see what kind of effect the disease had. And the results were really striking. So we had a 62% loss in coral cover from um, wow. 2000, in 2020 compared to the 2012 to 2018 time. So we used to have about 3% coral cover, which is already very low, but there's also some areas which are sandy in the transect. So that may be a re that's a reason why it is this low. And now it's down to almost only 1%. So this Gosh. is really, has really impacted the reefs a lot. And the richness, um, like if the species richness was also lower, um, in 2020 than most of the other years. And the worst thing I think that we found next to losing that much coral cover is there's three species that are rare and susceptible. So they're very rare on the reef already. And they, mm. um, they were infected by stony coral tissue loss. And for the first time, those three species have not been found on any of the transects. So these species are oh, probably gosh. still on the reef, yes. But 
they haven't been found on the transect, which means they have really decreased um, in, yeah, in that time. Wow. And so what is the main driver behind this coral loss, do you think? Like, well, what cause, well, the disease is the main driver, but the main driver behind the disease, we don't know yet. Um, we are pretty sure that it is some kind of bacteria causing the disease, but it's not, um, science hasn't figured out which bacteria on, of all the bacteria that are present on these disease corals is the one causing the disease. And which ones are just like mm. pushing the disease further once it starts. So it's a very difficult question to answer. Mm. And yeah, the disease travels through the water. It travels through fish going from a coral to coral. And it travels when two corals are in direct contact with each other. Mm. How, how fast can we see? You've just spoken about these three modes of transmission that we have of um, coral disease spreading between corals. How fast um, can these diseases progress? Um, so you mean progress from one coral to the next or on the coral itself? Um, kind of both, I guess. I guess it's a two-pronged question. How, how fast are we seeing the transmission, firstly, across corals in, within you know, the same reef? Um, and yeah, on an actual colony of coral, how how fast can we expect it to spread? Yes, so for the spread rate on the reef, I don't have a good number to tell you, but you definitely, like if you go diving the next week, especially in the beginning of the disease, so there, there's different phases, like in the beginning of the disease, it's mostly the brain corals um, that are infected. And it spreads pretty fast to to include other corals that you haven't seen last time you were on the reef. Like even if you go to the same reef every week. Um, and then later on, when, once it had like once many of the corals that are very susceptible have already been infected, it goes slower because it doesn't have as many hosts anymore. So that's why this is a bit of a difficult question to answer. Same with the spread on the mm. coral itself. I have seen corals that we took pictures of or, or a three, like a video for 3D modeling. And then a week later, you know, be, the first time we took the video, it was maybe half dead. And a week later, it was completely dead. So we're talking some corals, it, it moves really, really fast. And then other corals, it wow. just stops at one point. So mm. then it just stops and it may not, not kill the coral completely at all. Um, so, yes, it is a very fast moving disease, both at infecting corals. And once a coral is infected, it rapidly kills the coral compared to other diseases. But there's a lot of variation in how fast it's moving. So it's, yeah, I mean, from everything you're saying, you know, this, the stony coral loss disease sounds, you know, incredibly contagious. It causes rapid mortality. Um, you know, as you say, there are lots of mechanisms for spread. So it's, it sounds pretty deadly. And, you know, from reading your paper, 
you highlight that coral disease events have increased in in frequency and severity over the past several decades. And also things like bleaching events are quite often followed by these disease outbreaks. Um, And kind of what I'm interested in is, you know, coral reefs have been around for such a long time, um, but it seems like diseases are having quite a considerable impact right now. And, you know, why is that the case? Are they being exasperated by the stress that coral reefs are under? Um, Or is it just that, you know, the stony coral tissue loss disease is actually a new and and, and quite um, prevalent disease that has erupted because of the stress that coral reefs are under? I'm just trying to gain a picture here of like why these diseases have become more prevalent in in recent years and why they seem to be such a big problem for coral reefs. Yes, that's a very good question. I think a lot of diseases are linked to land-based pollution that, you know, is human-made pollution, whether it is sewage or runoff from agriculture or just other things that come from land and from our pollutants into the water. And this is a topic that the public doesn't know that much about. When they talk, when we talk about coral reefs and saving coral reefs, the public knows, oh, climate change is a big problem. They may think plastic is a big problem. They may think fishing is a big problem. But a lot of people in the local communities and also global community They're not aware that, you know, making sure that you have a good sewage cleaning system may actually help save the coral reefs. Because the corals, yeah, that's how bacteria can get introduced in the water. And I'm not saying that every coral disease is is due to um, bacteria introduced by humans through pollutants in the water, but at least some of them have been proven to be um, due to that. And a lot of the other coral diseases, we don't actually, we haven't identified the bacteria yet. So it's really hard to say what caused it, if it's a natural thing or if it's caused by humans. And so if we're introducing, say, novel bacteria from land-based pollution or um, sewage or whatever else we're putting into the ocean, what is the level of resistance like amongst corals? Do they already have some kind of evolved resistance against this bacteria, or are we are we seeing very low resistance to um, to, to novel bacteria in the water? Um, I don't know, so I'm not a specialist in finding the the bacteria that cause this. But what I know from teaching about coral diseases is that Corals as invertebrates, whatever immunity they are born with is the immunity they have for their entire life. So Mm. they cannot acquire immunity like we do. So they cannot, they couldn't get vaccinated against this, for example. And um, in terms of how, I guess, immunity links back into other stresses such as climate change, um, there is a theory that bleaching may immunocompromise corals and actually predispose them to disease. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes. So there's actually a lot of research being done on this and showing that, first of all, a lot of diseases are spreading faster when the water is warm, which is the same time that coral bleaching is happening. 
So both of them are mm. kind of at the same time and also enhanced by warm waters. But then if a coral has been bleached, I mean, bleaching for a coral means that um, the Susantelli, the little algae which lived in the coral and give it food, have been expelled. So you have to think about the coral having been fasting for quite a long time. And then if it's lucky enough and it can get back to Susantelli in time to survive, of course it will um, not be as strong as if it didn't go through that. And a lot of corals also don't um, reproduce in years they have been bleaching or years after because they, they don't have the resources for it. And if you think about this, like, you know, the coral is weakened afterwards, so it is a lot easier for a disease to come in and actually make a disease outbreak on that specific coral. Mm. And and what, what I'm just trying to picture it as well, because I remember quite vividly seeing some um, coral disease when I was in the Caribbean. Could you describe what um, this stony coral tissue loss disease actually looks like when you're looking at a coral? So you look at the coral, and as you, as most of you probably know, just the really top, top layer of the coral is tissue, and below it is um, the skeleton. And what happens with the disease is that at an edge where the disease is active, the coral is dying. So you have one part or several spots on the coral that are skeleton only. So you ha the skeleton is either white, if the coral has been dying really fast, or then you have algae on the skeleton already, if it has died um, seven days or, or longer ago. So if it's a really fast-moving stony coral tissue loss um, on the coral, then you have one side of the coral being completely white, while the other part still has the tissue. And if it's slower moving, then you will have one part that has algae, then you will have kind of a band that is white, and then you have the tissue. And the tissue itself sometimes even slots off, like it's kind of like almost like the edge is a bit um, up, so you could like put a knife under it type of thing. But yeah, the, oh. there's just a clear edge between the two between the, the tissue and the dead skeleton. I mean, I've seen pictures of, of, of this and, you know, as you say, it looks incredibly destructive for the coral. Um, and as you say, they lose the tissue and it just exposes the skeleton underneath and, you know, it, it looks incredibly dramatic. And, you know, we've spoken about it being incredibly deadly, but just how deadly we're we talking. Are we saying that if a coral gets infected, that that's pretty much game over for it? Um, you know, we know that corals that get bleached can actually bounce back and recover. But how, how deadly is this disease to a coral once it's actually been infected? Um, that's a really good question to ask. And I know other people have published papers on this, but... Off the top of my head, I don't know the exact numbers because you would have to trace um, individual colonies to see how how many of them actually die and how fast. And we haven't done that in um, Turks and Caicos. And yes, I, I would have to look up the numbers of what people found, but I think it's pretty high and definitely higher than in a lot of other coral diseases. 
Yeah, that's okay. I mean, in, in this field, I think quite often we're expected to know all of the answers to everything. But I was just interested because, you know, from everything you've said, it, it sounds like this is an emerging threat, but one that's being exasperated by the stresses that coral reefs are already under. And so it's almost like a perfect storm. And I was just very interested to know, you know, because from reading your paper, there are some, as you mentioned at the beginning, some rare species that have just kind of, you know, disappeared from the reef. And I just wondered, you know, how how bad is this? Is this something actually that we should be talking more about? Because when a coral does get infected, it's it's pretty much game over and and the coral can't actually bounce back. Or whether, as as Mads was saying, that you've got some immunity in different species. It's just very interesting and trying to sort of gather that picture of just how how bad this is. But I think now what would be good is to kind of like jump into the method section of your paper and kind of discuss a little bit more about how you went about quantifying this, the loss of coral because of this disease. And so you mentioned at the beginning that you did um, phototransects, but what what I want to know is why did you... um, choose this area. So you sampled three sites um, called the Arch, Spanish Chain and Plain. Um, Why is this area important and why were you doing this research there? Um, So those are three of the sites that we often go to and we actually don't have that many research sites. We have maybe a maximum of six sites that we actually do research on. So this this is a pretty good subsample of the sites we have. And these three sites were just the sites we had a lot of data from the other years. So the 2012 to 2018 surveys were already done there and there was um, long-term transects there. So that was really the reason why we went there because we could compare it to the years before. And going somewhere else or or doing it not on those transects wouldn't have made it possible to compare to the years before and see if there's an impact. But all of these sites had a lot of stony coral tissue loss disease. So it was definitely also from that perspective a good choice to make. And um, in terms of the... Um, the CPCE that you were using, could you tell us a little bit more about this method and how it's used for measuring coral richness and cover? Yes. So what the method does is the pictures we took on the water, which we made sure were all um, at the same distance from the reef. So you cover more or less the same area per picture. Mm. Um, It puts it into this program and then you tell the program how many random points you want the program to put on it. So you end up with, I think we had 20 or 30 random points, depending on also the year when when people were doing the study. And so you have little crosses. Those random points come out as little crosses. And for each cross, you look at the picture and determine what is right below that cross. And then you have a lot of different codes below that you can click to say it's this species or it's this algae or this sponge. And once you've done all those pictures and it will take you, you know, 10 minutes per picture or even longer, depending on 
how difficult, sometimes it's very difficult to see what's under it and you may have to ask a colleague for a second opinion and so on. Mm. And once you have done all those pictures for one transect, the E in CPCE is for Excel extension. It will make an Excel file. So it will calculate how many points you have and then it will count how many points were for this specific coral, for that specific coral. And then it will give you um, percentages, a percent cover for each of them. Wow, that sounds like a lot of um, in- intense data work. I was away with the fairy saying, just reminiscing about my experience using this software. And I can vouch for anybody listening who hasn't tried it. It is incredibly um, long-winded. And um, as you mentioned, Francisca, you know, you can spend a long time on each photo and it is difficult and yeah, drove me crazy when I used it before, but is obviously very important software for, for quantifying, you know, benthic assemblages. Uh, but yes, very, very timely. Do you think that going forward, there might be, you know, the evolution of technology and the ability for artificial intelligence to identify things? Do you think that potentially, but this is a question for both of you, actually, do you think there will evolve a faster method or uh, one that requires less human computer time? Yes. So people are working on making um, artificial intelligence um, that can do these things. And I know Mm. um, NASA actually had a project launched last summer where they made a game and they used the 3D models of the coral reefs that they had and in the game, anybody can play. You learn how to identify the corals and then you are identifying them in the game and you're getting points for it. Or I don't know, I've never played the game, but I assume it's more fun than CPCE. <laughs> and, oh, and, wow. Yeah. Just a little like and that data from, CPCE. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So And then that data from what people have identified trains the artificial intelligence so that the artificial intelligence afterwards can do this. It's so fascinating the way the world is going with these things. And um, I wholeheartedly welcome it because (laughs) I think anything where we can get away from these manual processes, which take up a considerable amount of time, um, would be brilliant. And I mean, we've got the technology there. So surely, hopefully... um, gamers can save the day um, and train this AI to um, identify assemblages for us instead of having to manually do it. So let's let's take this out now to the the kind of wider picture. Um, In terms of the prevalence of this disease across the Caribbean, how how prevalent is it? Is it is it just a local problem or are we seeing this across the Caribbean? So it started in 2014 in Florida. And until 2018, it was a Florida-only problem. So for three years at least, if not four, it hasn't moved from Florida. It moved all up and down the coral reef um, in the Florida coast. But it didn't move to the Caribbean. And then 2018, it started in Mexico and Jamaica and St. Martin. 2019, it was in seven more islands. 2020, it was in four more islands. And 
it's moving rather quickly. Um, there's the website from AGRA, um, Atlantic Gulf um, Rapid Reef Assessment, and they keep up with where the disease has been found, and there's a map there. So probably by the time this podcast comes out, there's already a new place that has the disease that I don't even know about today. Gosh, it's so terrifying um, that this is kind of progressing so quickly and also is now, you know, making quite big geographical leaps. Um, And I suppose this is something so, you know, is this disease potentially being being passed by people moving between these areas? Or is this just um, environmental transmission? You know, why do you think for three years it was just isolated to Florida and then all of a sudden has just somehow made these big sort of like leaps into other areas such as the Caribbean and Mexico? Yes, I mean, that's a question that we scientists are trying to answer. <laughs> like, has shipping some? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> has shipping something to do with it or not? Um, we haven't figured it out yet, unfortunately, but. Yeah, it is kind of weird that it leaped from one time to another. And, you know, when we look at other coral diseases, have they done similar things before um, in terms of, you know, staying in one place for a while and, and then suddenly it crops up somewhere else? Is this is there a history of, of coral diseases just, you know, randomly popping up in new places? I actually don't know um, if... This is normal. I think it normally does start in a place and then it does spread. But I don't know if there's a a case of a disease starting in a place and staying there for several years and then spreading quite widely into other areas. Hmm. And so, you know, let's let's take it kind of a bit away from... um, just coral now because you have also been working on um sargassum would you like to tell us a little bit more about that and and the work that you're doing with sargassum yes so my research career in the last few years was pretty much driven by catastrophic events happening on the island (laughs) i'm working on lovely Before that, I was happily looking at coral recruitment and calcification rates. Um, But then when I arrived in South Caicos for my faculty position, it was the summer of 2018, and there was a lot of sargassum in the Caribbean and also on our island. I remember um, flying to um, Trinidad for a conference and flying from South Caicos to Florida. I could see the sargassum in the in the ocean from the plane and then our beaches were full of it so that's when my journey with sargassum started a little bit before the journey with stony coral tissue loss disease and first of all i was just really interested how is this going to affect the seagrass because sometimes you have mats of sargassum just floating over the bay and there has been one study published from mexico that It had really bad effects on seagrass there. So for the the research we were doing or we are doing at School for Field Studies is student driven. So we have undergraduate students who come for study abroad semester. And part of their semester is to do a directed research project as a group. 
And as a faculty, I was in charge of two of these projects. So I designed a project around sargassum and how it affects seagrass beds. And we did a little experiment in the seagrass bed with um, kind of like tables that have shading on top of it with sargassum to see how how it affects the seagrass below. But we also went to the different beaches and went snorkeling to see the seagrass beds and, and see how it affects. It is affected by the sargassum. And we saw a lot of the seagrass beds having just stumps rather than seagrass. So that the, the leaves of the seagrass were, were all taken away because there wasn't enough sun and a lot of the sargassum was actually like sunk down into the seagrass and just smoothering it. Wow. Gosh. So, you know, for anybody, at home listening to this that doesn't know the problem about sargassum could you explain a little bit what because you mentioned that you could just see these vast swathes of sargassum from the plane so what what is this issue um you know and what is causing these massive sort of outbreaks of sargassum um sargassum is a floating well first of all there's 350 plus species of sargassum And the one I just talked to you about are the three spe- the two species, three morphotypes who are floating. So they're never attached to the ocean floor. Um, it's a macroalgae and it has, um, little bladders, which are filled with air that make them mm-hmm. float. And as an ecosystem out at sea, it's incredible. So there is the Sargasso Sea, which is um, an area around Bermuda, the only sea without a coast, where the sargassum naturally occurs, like for, I don't know how many thousands of years already. And there it is a really, really important ecosystem with species that only live in the sargassum that are completely camouflaged in it, um, baby turtles living in it, all kinds of fish using it. The problem is that some of that sargassum escaped in 2010-ish um, due to different current systems in the Atlantic and wind systems kind of like pushing some of it out of this gyre, which normally keeps it all together. And it went to North Africa and then down to the equator with currents. And down there, there's even more light. It's warmer. There's some nutrient upwelling. And the sargassum was like, wow. I love this place. <laughs> I gonna just grow really, really big. And it grew into this, what we call the great Atlantic sargassum belt. Mm-hmm. And that belt, it's there all the time, but in summer it really expands. And in 2018, there was 20,000 tons of the sargassum between the coast of Africa and Mexico, Florida into the whole Caribbean. Gosh. Yes. And just like it's coming up on the beaches, like sometimes it's knee high, sometimes it's hip high. Like I've seen people pictures and also on, on South Caicos, people like it's hip high. It's Wading like, through it. And then it decomposes. Wow. Yeah. Like the sargassum, the algae itself is dead as well. Everything that washed ashore with it is dead. And it's, it's a health hazard because it's decomposing gases with hydrogen sulfide and other gases. Um, I mean, tourists hate it, of course. 
I don't know. It's just so many problems coming with it. So if if there's so much sargassum, this must be quite a good carbon capturing opportunity, though, um, <laughs> in terms of climate change. So cons, yes, it, it shelters everything below. It kills stuff. It decomposes, um, releases this foul smelling um these gases but what about in terms of the pros of it are there any benefits to now having a massive expanse of plant-based material capturing carbon from the atmosphere um yes so that's what makes me really excited about sargassum is that there is the other side of the coin <laughs> which we don't have with coral diseases unfortunately that you can look at it as a nuisance coming to the beaches, this new influx of sargassum, or you can look at it as a new resource. And as you said, there's a huge amount of yeah. carbon in this sargassum. About a third of the biomass is carbon. So while it's out at sea, I sometimes say sargassum is like a climate activist because it's very disruptive, <laughs> but it also um, captures a lot of carbon. So it captures all that carbon but at the moment, the way people are managing sargassum, it is taken away from the beaches or just before it reaches the beach. But there aren't many uses for the resource yet. So most of it is dumped somewhere on land in some type of like landfill type thing. And there it also makes problems because if you dump a lot of this algae on land, and sometimes it has um, high arsenic levels. In the French islands, they have it, ha it takes up chlordecon, which is a really bad fertilizer they used that they realized they shouldn't be using anymore. So now this chlordecon is coming back to their shores and they're dumping it back onto their soils, which is really bad. Um, so dumping it can have a bad impact on the soil and on the groundwater, like just having all these masses of decaying algae on your land and also all that carbon that the algae captured while being out at sea it's going back into the atmosphere so it's completely lost all that work the sargassum is doing for us so that's why with the podcast we are doing we want to highlight the people who have found ways to use it and people are making all kinds of products out of it um, from soap to medicine, to paper, to fertilizer, shoes out of sargassum and um, plastics. Wow. Um, a guy makes houses out of clay and sargassum. No. Yes. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, what else are they making? Um, they're feeding goats. They're growing mushrooms. Yes, Gosh. all kinds of stuff. Biochar, um, potentially could make en energy out of it like methane, biogas. So there's a lot of hurdles to using sargassum because it's a very salty algae that has arsenic heavy metals in it. So you have to be careful and you, you don't know always how much is arriving, but at the moment it's a free resource and we are spending so much money removing it already that we really have to find uses for it because otherwise we're just creating a problem on land with soils and groundwater. Yeah, completely. 
And I just love that. That's bio-innovation at its best. And, mm. you know, that was actually going to be my question was, you know, well, how can we how can we address this issue? And it's absolutely incredible to hear that people are innovating off, off the back of what is happening. And it is very, very exciting. Um, so let's let's uh, keep on this lighter note because I'm absolutely loving it. Um, so this year as well, um, Francisca, you are also on a climate sabbatical, um, a climate change sabbatical, which in which you've been volunteering with various organisations and projects to help solve the climate cl- climate crisis. Sorry, and engaging in climate activism. Um, tell us a little bit more about the sabbatical. What have you been up to? What have the goals been? Yes. So the idea of this came in summer 2019 because with the IPCC report coming out and with Greta speaking up, I realized we have to speak up more. This is such an important issue that, you know, does my reputation as a scientist, is that more important than speaking up? No, it's not because if we can't solve climate change, then I'm going to lose my job as a scientist as well. And I was teaching students who are in their early 20s and they all want to become coral reef scientists, or a lot of them do. And, you know, teaching takes a lot of time and it's a very fun career and especially the way we were doing it, which was a lot of water time. But in the end of the day, what is needed right now is people actually solving this climate crisis. And I thought if I did that, and I had some money on the side, so I could volunteer for a project that I thought would would make an impact. Then I would do more for those students and their careers than teaching them how to um, study coral reefs. So that's how I started on this. And as soon as I gave my notice and I was advertising my position on the Sargassum email listserv, I got invited by Fearless Fund, an NGO in um, Washington, to help them on their research and development project on harvesting sargassum at a large scale, which then could be used to make energy products or carbon capture. So what we've just been talking about, like really using sargassum at a large scale to help with climate change. So I helped with that. At the same time, I was organizing Global Coral Reef Week, which we started organizing before the pandemic as an option for coral reef scientists to present their research at an online conference, um, because doing so was not really available. And those international conferences, often we have to fly very far to go to them, and not every coral reef scientist can afford to do so money-wise, or because they have a a baby or something else going on in their life. And of course, a lot of people feel really bad about their carbon emissions. And we literally are talking about saving the coral reefs while destroying it while going to that conference. (laughs) (laughs) That is an incredibly um, poignant point and something I think the world is becoming a lot more aware of. And, you know, Going back to what you said about your students, them all wanting to sort of be, you know, coral biologists or work with coral reefs, you know, it's it's 
it's funny because I think we all get into marine science because we care and because we want to spend time in these habitats. Like who doesn't want to go and dive on a coral reef and spend hours underwater looking at these incredible ecosystems? But at the same time, actually, a lot of the work that needs to be done to to kind of protect these ecosystems is on land, is working with policymakers to come up with, you know, better legislation uh, to protect our environment. Or, you know, we need to be actually spending more time probably out of the water um, working with our policymakers to implement the, the legislation that we need. Um, to to protect it, but it's it's just a bit of irony. But it's wonderful to hear that um, you know you're doing that and and also inspiring the next generation to think about that too. Yes, uh, I totally agree. Like climate change is now more of a social science problem to be solved than a natural science problem. Like it, it affects the natural world a lot, but to solve the climate change climate change. We need to change people's mindsets and change policy. And that's why I wanted to actually act as a scientist as if it's an emergency, because I feel like we have published this IPCC report and then we just went back to um, what we did before. Mm-hmm. And the report says we need rapid, unprecedented changes. And what if, well, if we scientists aren't making rapid, unprecedented changes after reading this report, how are we expecting, like, the government or the policymakers to take us seriously when we say this? And that's why in this year and even now still, I'm taking, I'm doing a lot of activism as well. I'm part of Scientist Rebellion and Extension Rebellion. And yeah, like, we have to speak up. We have to, act as if it is an emergency and not just go on as as if it's not yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more um and you know i think we're we're coming to the end of the podcast now and we we usually ask our podcast guests if they have any words of wit and wisdom to uh leave leave the podcast with but i think you actually did a very good job there of um, you know, adding some definitely some wisdom about how we can how we can act and how imperative it is that we that we act now. Um, but I would obviously like to ask you if there is anything else you wanted to uh, impart with us uh, before we wrap up. Yeah, I think that was pretty much summing it up. But yeah, as a scientist, if you're listening to this, you know, think about what you can what really you can lose by speaking up more and how important is this like is the thing we are fighting for like you know people taking climate change and other issues seriously is that not more important than what you could lose yeah i think that's yeah i think that's really really valuable point um so that brings us to the end of our podcast today Thank you, Francisca, so much for coming on. Um, where can people go to find out more about you or your podcast um, or your work? Yes. So our podcast is called The Sargassum Podcast. You can find it on YouTube and on any like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any of those podcast providers. There's also a website. So if you Google it, you will find it. And I have a website as well. Um, If you Google my name, you will find it and 
probably you can also put it in the show notes so people can see it right there. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. It's been absolutely brilliant to discuss all things coral and sargassum, well, coral disease and sargassum with you. Um, And hopefully this podcast will inspire more people uh, to act, especially more scientists to act and to raise their voices um, and truly be climate activists. have been listening to the women in ocean science podcast brought to you by women in ocean science and hosted by me mad sinclair and charlie young if you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at women in ocean science we are a non-profit organization so every like comment share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission thanks for tuning in guys and i hope you have an awesome week